Hello, everybody. Welcome to Unbossed. It's me, Cub Burbank. Senator Turner is here with us only in spirit today, but we've put together a really fun show for you. First, we're going to talk about someone who lied on their resume a little bit. Uh, maybe some of you out there have lied on your resume. Guarantee this person took it 10 steps further. Uh, then we're going to talk about Rishin Sunak, uh, the prime minister in the UK, who made a hilarious faux pas. And then more of Joe Biden not keeping his promises. And here to break it down with me is Ray Vanna, the host of Reactions. How you doing, Ray? I'm good. I'm happy to be on here with you today. And then uh, you'll be on with me tomorrow on Watchlist. So back to back, Jessica and Ray. Will the audience be able to handle this much awesome? I don't know. Double dose of the dynamic duo. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. We're really excited for this story. So this man, you may have heard of him, George Santos, has lied about who he is as a person, what his accolades are when he's been running for office. He won his election, so this is very interesting. It's not just his college and work history, it's really about who he is as a person. Here's his smug shot, as we like to say. He first ran for Congress in 2020, and then in November of this year, he was elected to represent parts of Northern Long Island and Northeast Queens. Santos's exaggerations were first identified by the New York Times. So here are some of those claims. He said he worked at two prominent Wall Street banks, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. He had obtained degrees in finance and economics from two New York colleges, that he was Jewish, that four employees of his company were killed in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida in June of 2016. And the lies are now slowly being debunked. Look at this headline. Liar representative elect George Santos admits fabricating key details of his bio. So regarding the banks, both Citigroup and Goldman Sachs couldn't find records verifying that George Santos told the Post, uh, or they couldn't find records verifying he ever worked for them. Uh, he directly told the Post himself that he never worked directly for either firm and had used a poor choice of words. So just a big misunderstanding that he had worked at these two huge banks. Uh, then regarding his financial education, so his collegiate background. He acknowledged he didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning at all. He said, I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. Then regarding being Jewish, and this is the kicker for me, honestly. I never claimed to be Jewish, I am Catholic, because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background. I said I was Jew-ish. I wanna stop there, <laughs> I was Jew-ish. I mean, the play on words, it's offensive, really, in a time of rising anti-Semitism, unfortunately, also hilarious. Yeah, Oh, I mean, it's hysterical. I've been laughing about this all day. I think it's hilarious, but you're right. I mean, it is offensive amidst the rise of anti-Semitism. Because why did he claim this? Because he's doing what conservatives falsely accuse liberals of doing. And he's playing identity politics to create some sort of, you know, victimized identity for himself. You know, he also said that they fled from Ukraine. So he tried to tie that in there too, which apparently also was not true. It's just, it's sick. But I can't look away. I mean, this guy's name is George Santos, but he acts more like George Costanza from Seinfeld. He's lied himself into a corner and is coming back to get his ass. 
<laughs> I don't know what happens next, but uh, the lies didn't stop there. Regarding the Pulse nightclub shooting, Santos revised claims that a company uh, he worked for lost four employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Santos said the four were in the process of being hired. Hmm, so maybe they had exchanged some emails from some higher ups, not a complete story there. Then finally, he stated, my sins are embellishing my resume, I'm sorry. I mean, to use the word sins there, like, oh, you guys are accusing me of such terrible things. All I did was a little resume embellishment when I was running for public office to represent people. So a bunch of other politicians decided to call him out on Twitter. Here's what Ted said, GOP Congressman-elect George Santos, who has now admitted to his whopping lies should resign. If he does not, then GOP leaders should call for a vote to expel Santos for Congress. So, I mean, Kurt Bardella said he's committed fraud. I, I would say, you know, at the very worst fraud at the very least. I mean, he lied to voters and didn't make good on his campaign promises, which is, is pretty much what everybody else does. That you're going to represent people, you have this background. Turns out he's not the guy he said he was. That happens pretty often, but these lies are extreme. And what's weird is we don't know if they helped him get elected, we really don't. I mean, maybe the lies that he worked for big banks helped him get elected, but the lies that he was a gay Jewish man did not. We really don't know. But of course, as Ravana said, I think the conservatives are going to make the case that this plays into the classic liberal identity politics, which it does. But we don't know if this is why this guy won. It's a weird thing to do, and I'm not sure what his motivations were. Ravana. Yeah, I mean, I think his motivations were to to shift to the center more, not politically through his policies, but through these identities, so that he could frame himself as a more moderate candidate and be more, you know, uh, to to appease more of the liberal centrist voters in New York, so he wasn't presenting himself as a far right, you know, individual politician. Uh, as opposed to a moderate conservative, despite the fact that once he gets to Congress, he'll vote just as he would if he ran as like a far right Trumper. Um, but you know, to the constituents of the district who voted for him and now feel like they, you know, got dealt a bad hand, it sucks. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing that Congress can do, you know, procedurally to remove him from the seat. The only thing that can happen is that the GOP pressures him to step down, and they won't do it because they need that seat. So, you know, there's no integrity in the Republican Party. I don't expect them at all to to try to take this and sort of wash it and clean their PR throughout this. They're not going to do that. They're just going to let him vote the way they need him to vote in in Congress and then uh, you know, if he loses in his reelection campaign, that's the only way to get him out. And it's sad because the constituents now have to deal with him for the next two years, even if they feel like this isn't the person I voted for because he fabricated this. It's not even a version of him, it's somebody else <laughs> to run that campaign. I think the most plausible claim he made was that. Uh, four of his colleagues were involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting because if he said, you know, I worked at Walmart, it's one of the largest employers in the country. Chances are in any batch of human beings about, you know, if there's 50, there's about four of them that probably worked at a big company like Walmart at some point in their lives. But then he says, you know, I was hard. It was part of the hiring process for a company I worked for without naming the company. I mean, he's not even lying smartly. And the weird part about this story is when they describe his district because Growing up in the tri-state, you know, you'll know very well that Northeast Long Island 
very different from Queens. And the way they are cutting these districts to dilute the votes, sure enough, for people in Queens uh, to have this be a conservative seat, I think is a part of this story that we're not you know, talking about near enough. This is very clearly a terribly gerrymandered district. When you think about, I don't know, the body of water between those two areas, they cut this like an L. There's no other way they could have with Long Island being there and the island of Manhattan being in the middle. It's just ridiculous that these are the kind of districts we have where someone like this can win and represent people in Queens. I think we also need to look at the DCCC for giving us this man <laughs> because there, it didn't take much research for journalists to uncover and expose and debunk all of his, you know, fantasies that he told about himself. Why couldn't the DCCC conduct meaningful oppo research to get this information out to the voters before they voted? It's ridiculous. I mean, and I'm always saying that the Democratic Party is a party that wants to lose. They run like they want to lose. Their you know policies are as if they want to lose. Everything they do is like you're just attempting to lose. And you see the same thing here. If they had just done a little bit of research, invested a little bit of time and effort into a winnable district, they could have won. And instead, they were sitting on their hands. I don't know what they were doing. It's ridiculous. Yep, absolutely ridiculous and business as usual for the Democratic Party. All right, let's get into something a little bit more interesting, funny. So we know the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, had a bit of a blunder over the weekend. Let's watch it. Morning. I'm all right, how are you? What's your name? Yeah, that's right, I'm Rishi. What's your name? Dean. Dean, how are you? Hungry. Hungry? Well, this is, we hope we get you some good breakfast. That's that. That's some cutlery. Let me get with you. Are you cutting me out? Well, that is exactly what I'm trying to do. Exactly what I'm trying to do. Uh, business. What, what do you have? A, you, do you work in a business? Do you want some no, fruit? No, I'm, I'm homeless, and I'm actually a homeless person at the minute. But I'm interested in business. Is that something you'd like to get into? Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind. Um, but I don't know. I'd like to get through Christmas first. Yeah. What's the- So are you a bit of a businessman yourself? How's your morning going as I'm serving you this food? No, I am homeless. So this out of touch moment, unsurprisingly, uh, drew the ire of many. Let's look at some of these tweets. So this says Rishi Sunak is so out of touch, working for the PR points in a homeless shelter. His original question to a homeless person is, do you have a business? Which he switches at the last minute to do you work in a business? Hmm, it goes to show just the kind of company he's keeping and how out of touch he is from everyday people's lives. And it's hilarious that this happens when he's clearly doing a PR stunt, trying to be in the community and be giving back to the community. When most politicians could best give back to the communities they serve by passing policies to actually provide things like public goods for the people they're supposed to serve, like do their actual job, but instead they're, they're doing photo ops. We had Rachel Clark also tweet, why do politicians believe photos like this capture anything other than their cynicism? Here's Rishi Sunak cosplaying in cashmere as a homeless shelter staff member yesterday. Then we had Joanne Harris say, billionaire by marriage. Just a great start to a tweet. Uh, Rishi Sunak uh, chirpingly, or chirpily telling a homeless Londoner about all the job opportunities and finance that exist outside the city while the homeless guy's breakfast slowly goes cold and he wonders how he'll get through Christmas. 
FFS both these people out. So this is just a, another example of growing dysfunction in the United Kingdom. Keep in mind, he took office uh, after Liz Truss, who only served for about six weeks. I don't know if served is the right word, only held that position for about six weeks. Uh, Sunak's approval rating was already taking a hit prior to this you know, faux pas at the homeless shelter. Uh, labor leads by 14 points. Let's look at this headline as Rishi Sunak's approval rating dips. I would love to see uh, a labor prime minister in office in the United Kingdom. Uh, let's get to the details from London Loves Business. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's next net approval rating has dipped from plus 2% to minus 4%. 30% approve of the job he is doing while 34% disapprove. I mean, Liz Truss was an easy act to follow. Somehow he is still failing. Ravana, what do you make of this? Yeah, I just can't. I was laughing hysterically. I know they couldn't see me, but <laughs> just at the him asking that question. But what really got me was when he asked as a follow up, would you like to get into business? Like, sir, this man wants to get into housing. I don't think his primary concern <laughs> is is, you know, getting into the stock market or opening a, a business. He wants shelter. His basic needs need to be met. And you're exactly right highlighting how disconnected he is from the actual experience of people, you know, living in the country that he is supposed to, you know, be in charge of, and just the absolute complete lack of awareness he had in that moment. You know, it's just emblematic of who he is as a politician. Um, but you know, ultimately, what's what's so sad about it is that Rishi Sunak left there and went to, you know, his his very nice house and had a wonderful, nice Christmas with his family. Um, whereas the people who he was, you know. <laughs> forcing to listen to his musings about the business world. After this, where do they go? And what is he actually doing aside from giving them one meal to ensure that they can find housing, they have housing, their needs are met, and that they can have you know, the ability to just get through Christmas, which is what the man said. I mean, it's depressing and you know, we see the sort of disconnect between politicians and the people they're supposed to be representing all the time. It's, it's capitalism. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the only appropriate reason he would have for saying something like this is if he were to follow it up with, well, I, I have a loan, some capital to give you for you to start a business out of the goodness of my heart from you know my billionaire spouse's pockets. Whatever the case may be for why he said this, it shows that there's no understanding that the reason people are poor is because the choice they have is to sell their labor to someone else who does have the capital to start a business in order to survive. This disconnect is there because there are some people who have always lived within the capitalist class, people who have money that they can make more money off of, whether it be through the stock market, through starting their own businesses. And then there's an underclass of people that are literally living in a recession in the United Kingdom. Uh, look at this headline, the United Kingdom recession could turn into a lost decade. So given the trouble that the UK is in right now, and what their prime minister is doing is photo ops to make it seem like he's helping out by serving food, no doubt that he didn't donate or make himself. Another headline, life or death as Britain's buckle under the cost of living crisis, many resort to warm banks for heat this winter. And this, overall crisis estimated that around 227,000 people 
were experiencing the worst forms of homelessness, rough sleeping, sleeping in vans and sheds, and stuck in BNBs across England, Scotland, and Wales in 2021. So people are struggling to pay their energy bills when they do have homes in the United Kingdom to stay warm this winter. But there are many people who are houseless across the United Kingdom. And this guy has the audacity to ask someone who is in a shelter if he would like to get into business, because that's the kind of small talk he's used to. That's what he talks to his friends about, about their business ventures. His everyday conversation isn't, hey, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling this morning? Like, how are you feeling about the holiday? Like, can I get you anything else from this spread of food? There's no sense of, of treating someone else like a human being. It's all about business transactions. And that's reality for most of the ruling class, of the people who run governments all around the modern world and the West. It's really sad. Uh, but this is who's leading the United Kingdom right now. Not a big step up from Liz Truss. Rayvon? Yeah, I also just want to point out that at the beginning of that interaction, uh, he said, you know, I'm trying to fix the economy. Because that was what the uh, man was like, what are, are you going to help the economy? So it, it makes sense that someone like Sunak, his mind would go to business. Oh, that's asking about the business sector. Whereas for the average person living in the UK or honestly anywhere, the average working class individual or uh, you know, poor individual, that's not what the economy is. It's not about businesses being successful. It's about, can I afford to feed myself? Can I afford shelter? Can I afford the necessities for me and my family? Whereas, you know, that's something Sunak's never experienced in his life. So he wouldn't immediately connect the two, but it's his job to know how the economy is impacting individuals that he's meant to be representing. And also, just quickly want to touch on the article that said, that it's life or death. And I know people might think that that was a little bit dramatic, but it is quite literally life or death for people in the UK with the massive increase in the costs of electricity. People are freezing, people who are housed are freezing to death in their houses, particularly elderly people. And this has been going on for a long time, far too long for the UK to have not done anything effective to intervene. And it is just sad. I think the the crazy thing about democracies across the world right now is that so often the person who's the head of state who supposedly is supposed to represent people has no idea what everyday life is like for these people. But oftentimes they have access to the kind of wealth and capital within their own personal circles that could address address many of the national problems they face. I mean, this person's spouse is a billionaire, comes from a billionaire family. The amount of money that is and the kinds of problems that could solve, I mean, just a simple redistribution of wealth could address many of the economic problems within the United Kingdom. And it's just disgusting that this is supposed to be someone who's a head of state, who's supposed to fix the problems and represent people when they have access to the capital that could fix many of the problems they've been elected to address. It doesn't make any sense if they actually cared about those problems. They would resolve them in their personal lives. They're running for public office to have power and do the bidding of corporations like they always have. Uh, All right, we've got to take our first break. We'll be back after this. All right, it's Jessica and Ravana back on Unbossed. And Vicky, who says, yay, yay, Jess and Ray. It runs. It's beautiful, (laughs) beautiful comment. This is the best part of the show. Fiddling narrow. Or Nero says two progressive queens stepping in for another progressive queen. You know, we don't believe in monarchy, but we accept the title queen uh, 
for this purpose only. All right, lovely imperfection says, love you ladies. Thank you for your many contributions. Thank you for being with us. We love you all. All right, you ready to talk about Joe Biden? All right, let's get into this. So a lot of people have said we will never be able to address the global problem of climate change if we have countries that are not industrial nations that are still developing. They can't use fossil fuels and cheap energy to industrialize like nations in the West have. A big reason for that is because many of these nations were colonized by nations in the West. But it's a big question now, what do we do to support their transition to renewable energy? Because we know we have to if we wanna keep living on the planet, nothing major. So Biden has promised $11.4 billion each year for developing countries to ease climate impacts and help them shift to renewable energy. But the vast 1.7 trillion spending bill to keep the United States government running passed by the Senate on Thursday includes less than 1 billion in climate assistance for those countries. So a little bit about what is in the bill. The bill, which is expected to pass the House and be signed by the president, includes 270 million for adaptation programs, largely for countries in Asia and the Pacific Islands, along with 260 million in clean energy investment aimed at Africa. Another 185 million will go on sustainable landscapes programs. So when we think about how much has been promised each year, 11.4 billion and only 1 billion being given. I just think about how much money US based multinational corporations have extracted from developing nations, nations that we promised this money to. How much money have we made over them over the centuries where we've exploited their labor and extracted their resources, oftentimes having friends in the State Department ensure that the CIA would coup anyone who was unfriendly to our extraction of their resources or exploitation of their labor. Probably billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars in value worth of of labor and resources. So we've intentionally made resource rich nations financially poor over the years so that they can't afford this transition to renewable energy. Not only that, but industrialized nations that were often the colonial empires were also the same countries that were emitting a ton of carbon and polluting the world and making the planet unlivable and creating conditions where climate disasters will disproportionately affect these nations in the global south. Makes a lot of sense. It seems like spending this money is not just the right thing to do so that we transition to renewable energy and can continue to live on this planet, but also as a form of reparations for what we've done internationally to all of these different societies around the world. So the Guardian reported that developing countries will need anything from 340 billion to $2 trillion a year by 2030, according to various studies, to cope with the cascading impacts of global heating. Now, when asked about what's going on with this spending, a White House spokesperson said that the $11 billion target is a top priority for us and critical to the success of President Biden's climate agenda. And the president has made clear that he is going to fight to see this fully funded. So Biden's presidency, to me, as someone who believes politicians generally should make good on their promises and their campaign promises, because that's what you are elected to do if you run on a particular platform, 
uh, you're getting the votes because of that platform. And it's turned into Scott's tots on the office from student loan cancellations uh, being promised throughout his entire race. Uh, and not only that, but when he was in public office, he promised to uh, cancel much more in student loans. We shouldn't say forgive because we're not being forgiven for wrongdoing by taking out loans to go to college. Uh, the transition to renewable energy, another promise he's made to invest in uh, domestically that he has not made good on. Union support, he said he would strengthen the NLRB and support unions if elected into office. And he's just forced rail workers into a contract. I mean, seriously, his entire presidency has been a Scots tots of campaign promises that have not come true. Uh, and that's also true for developing countries that should be able to transition to renewable energy with the rest of the world so that we continue to have a planet. It seems simple to me, Ravana. Yeah, anytime a politician says something is their top priority, just know there's no way in hell that thing's ever happening. <laughs> if it was your top priority, it would have been done. It wasn't, so clearly it was not your top priority. I also wanna say that you you were spot on connecting the extraction of these resources to these um, multinational corporations. I mean, we saw this with Ecuador, Chevron poisoned the water there, destroyed uh, their ecosystem cause people to die of, of cancers, cause severe birth defects. And they're so, so deeply interlocked with the you know judicial system in the United States. I mean, for the love of God, there's a doctrine in the law called the Chevron Doctrine. But they were able to use their connections with the Federalist Society to these judges to ensure that they would never have to pay a dime despite having the largest, Fine placed against them in environmental justice history for what they did in Ecuador, and they'll never have to answer to that. And we'll see, and that's why for politicians, it's not their top priority, or it's their top priority to address these climate change issues because what is going to hold them accountable? When these multinational corporations who are helping fund their campaigns, they know that they're never going to get in trouble for what they're doing. You know, it's it's all on the back burner. We've got a Supreme Court that's constantly undermining the ability of the EPA to go after these, you know, climate polluters. The whole system is not structured to benefit the people who are the most damaged by, you know, these by climate change people in these developing countries. And they're not getting the justice they deserve. And even when they're supposed to be receiving it, the United States steps in and, and prevents them from receiving any sort of, you know, retribution or any, any sort of, you know, financial restitution for what has happened to them, let alone preventing it from happening in the first place. Yeah, and not to mention like the Bretton Woods Accords and how much we decided to make uh, the dollar, uh, the currency standard for the entire world and then sold debt to nations said, hey, like you're gonna need some dollars to fund your development. No, they won't. These are resource rich countries that were pretty much fine and sustainable until colonizers came in and destabilized them and taught them different ways of creating energy and mass. I mean, to, to address this as if it's like the United States helping out developing countries that are struggling, it doesn't make sense because really we created the instability in so many of these countries. And if it wasn't the United States, it was another imperial power in the West that should also be giving some of their wealth to the transition to renewable energy to address a problem that they've created. And the, the way that the framing is in mainstream media, that it's some form of charity whenever nations in the West 
are, are giving any kind of financial support or technological support to other countries, it doesn't make sense because all of their wealth was extracted and stolen. And then we destabilize them politically and try to impose Western values upon them and Western religions upon them. That's extremely destabilizing for a society, let alone the way we've cooed democratically elected leaders and government for resources as well. And then to say, you know, it would be really nice of us to give them $11.4 billion. It's a top priority for us. We haven't done it yet. How many more days do we have? Three days, Joe, to make good on that promise. Why promise the $11.4 billion in the first place? It does not make sense to me. All right, we're going to go to another story. And this story, it's more neoliberalism. These damn neoliberalism neoliberals have me saying WTF neoliberals. We will now kneel. Miss Cinema. Miss Cinema. No. You have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. It was LBJ said that I think the difference between liberals and cannibals is cannibals don't eat their own family. You know, and <laughs> I think there's a constant one. sense among <laughs> Democrats that we are, we're really awful, I think, to each other. We don't talk about Biden's accomplishments enough. We don't tout them. You hear a lot of complaining on the Democratic side. All right, so Chai Komanduri is saying that we are being too tough on Joe Biden. Uh, I think we need to be even tougher on him. We just ran a story about him promising $11.4 billion to developing countries to help them transition to renewable energy. And so far, $1 billion of that has been pledged with about three days left in the year. But it's especially when he's not taking care of workers at home as well. Look at this headline, Biden signs bill averting rail worker strike despite lack of paid sick days. I mean, seriously, you have workers that have to promise to be on call if they take a sick day for, I don't know, they're in the hospital where they wanna witness the birth of their child and they're not even the one sick, they don't have any sick days. And so they make deals in exchange with their bosses that they promise to be on call. That means they could get in from a shift from doing a 12 hour driving of a freight train. They could get home, get into bed at 11 p.m. when they when they get back from the terminal and then get called back in at three in the morning and have to go off again because they've promised to be on call. They have given up their entire lives for their jobs. And that's just an everyday worker in the United States of America. And Biden has decided, you know what, it's okay to, to have these workers have these predatory contracts. Taking away the one thing they can do, which is withhold their labor to get their message across. Legally now, they cannot do that. Then we have the student loan debt crisis. Biden's 2022 solution to student loan debt could fall apart in 2023. Now, we know that the education secretary has the legal power to cancel student loan debt. That's very clear, there was a memo about this. The fact that it's being challenged in court in the administration is not making this a top priority. And when you have strategists like Chai saying, you know, we've got to be easier on Biden, why is your priority not fighting for the working people that are trying to go on strike for a better contract or the students who were tricked into taking student loan debt out by bankers who no doubt wanted to make money off of them. Uh, why is that not your priority? Why instead are you saying we've got to be nicer to Joe? Doesn't make sense to me. Then we have the consequence of this being Republicans narrowly winning the House, uh, which is ending full Democratic control of Congress. It's almost like Joe Biden failing to make good on his promises is what got us in this position. So yeah, we do need to be harder on Joe 
Biden. And here is just a laundry list of his incomplete campaign promises. So provide universal pre-K for three and four year olds. Raise the national minimum wage to $15 an hour. Codify Roe versus Wade. Create a public health insurance option. Get the COVID-19 pandemic under control. Uh, then we have some uh, more incomplete and failed promises. He promised to work with Congress to set up a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, ban assault weapons, repeal certain tax cuts that Trump approved, implement police oversight commissions, provide families with up to 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. So he ran a, a huge campaign with very ambitious progressive promises. And he's running his administration like he's a neoliberal. Ravana? Yeah, so many of these like democratic strategists just have what seems to be a child's understanding of politics. Like the real issue right now is that we're not being nice enough to Joe Biden. And he's saying this on MSNBC, which hasn't exactly been very hostile to the Democratic Party or to the Biden administration throughout his tenure thus far. You know, they haven't run very many stories highlighting the, you know, broken promises of the Biden administration. Um, so I mean, it really what he's trying to do is he's trying to appeal to these the, the media, not necessarily to the, the individual and saying that the media needs to treat Biden more kindly. When in reality, when the media is the institution that is providing a lot of people with their, their information, their news of the day about what's going on, they need to be the ones that are holding Biden accountable. They need to be the ones that are going harder on him and showing these broken promises and showing all that showing all that he campaigned on that he hasn't done yet and highlighting the ways in which he can do them, you know, particularly those things like student loan forgiveness that can be done unilaterally. Doesn't have to go through Congress, but they continue to run this this tepid defense of him and saying like, you know, maybe he needs to go through Congress to do it so it would be a stronger case for it. I mean, it's it's sad and to see that the, you know, and I said before, the Democratic Party is a party that loves to lose. If your strategist's like key idea for how to win the White House again in 2024 is to be nicer to the president, I mean, just kiss every election goodbye from now on. Yeah, it's like when you used to have to solve a math problem and the teacher would say, show your work. Whenever you have a, a democratic administration, they're like, ah, oh, like we're working on this, we're trying so hard. There's just, you know, gridlock in Congress and all of these, you know, the parliamentarians, you know, a real thorn in our side. It's like all of these excuses. Uh, show your work that you're actually trying to get something done. Show your work that you're trying to circumvent the parliamentarian and get something passed. Because it seems like a ridiculous procedural roadblock to say that the parliamentarian is the reason our democratically elected representatives can't pass extraordinarily popular legislation. I mean, it's so clear that the government is being run by and for elites. Because when you see people defend Joe Biden, the reasons they give for why he's doing a good job as president have absolutely nothing to do with everyday life for working class people. They say he's doing a great job running the economy and then they cite gross domestic product. They don't cite that everyone is paying their rent on time every month. Everyone is paying their bills. Everyone has enough money to pay for what they need and a little bit extra for leisure time because they don't. Because working class people are struggling all across the country just to put food on, their, on the table. And what Joe Biden ran on were policies that would address problems that working class people have living in the oppressive economy of the United States. And the fact that he's doing nothing about it is precisely why we are losing 
And these consultants don't care. And the people posting on Twitter defending Biden's presidency with all of these empty metrics that make it seem like he's doing a good job, they don't care either. Uh, and it's about time that we actually have a political movement that represents working class people. And really my only hope for that right now is in the labor movement, to be entirely honest. And the fact that Biden is stomping on that as well and not making good on his campaign promise to be a labor president is a huge problem as well. Uh, Ravana, any last thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I just wanna say that Joe Biden said he was gonna represent the working class and the middle class. And where is he on those issues? He he campaigned to those people, made promises, broke those promises. You're not gonna be able to run on that again, Joe, unless you step up to the plate and protect the workers. Yeah, a thousand percent, not gonna be able to run on that again. And that is also why they've lost control of the house. We've gotta take another break, we'll have more on the other side. Welcome back to Unboss. It is Jessica Burbank and Ray Vanna and S-Man who says Biden stands will defend him to the end of the earth, even to the detriment of the people. It's honestly right out of the Trump playbook. It's pathetic. I think that's interesting. Just the fact that Biden is someone capable of creating a cult of personality. I think it says more for the Democratic Party than it does for Biden. Then over on Twitch, Duo says, the future for TYT looks very bright with the fantastic co-hosts we have today, freaking awesome, with many flames emojis. And then YouTube super chat, Donald Trump Bone Spurs, that is a great username, uh, says, Joe, do not a damned thing. Uh, okay, I think doesn't do a damn thing, but vote for me anyway, cuz Obama, Biden. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, championing the legacy of the president who came before him. And actually the movement that was behind Obama in the first run that kind of fizzled out when he decided not to run as a progressive. But still, many people really like Joe Biden because they trust him because he was Obama's vice president. All right, let's get into this. Uh, trigger warning that the next story we're going to cover does mention uh, sexual assaults against women. But uh, this is a great video, let's watch. Hombre, para violar a una mujer, para agredir sexualmente a una mujer, necesita hacerse pasar por una mujer. A las mujeres no nos ponen en riesgo las personas trans, nos pone en riesgo la desigualdad salarial, la sobrecarga de cuidados y los agresores machistas. So if you didn't get what the, the text on screen there, what she was saying was, she said, no man needs to impersonate women, to rape women, to sexually assault women. Trans people do not put us at risk. It is wage inequality, women's care burden, and sexist male aggressors that put us at risk. Uh, just a really powerful speech at a time when so many people are saying that we cannot have transgender women in women's restrooms because it is a risk of violence. When in fact, most violence against women is coming from cisgender men. Uh, the data supports that. So the World Health Organization reported uh, that estimates indicate that globally one in three, so 30% of women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. So Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to tweet the following. She said, don't ever talk to me about equality again until biological women's rights and privacy are protected. 
turning your head, allowing and championing the cancellation of real biological women and their right to compete in their own sports by biological men is not equality. But even worse is repeating the same decisions when it comes to biological girls' bathrooms, camp cabins, dorm rooms, and biological women's rape clinics, prisons, and healthcare. If you supposedly care so much, then actually care about real biological girls and women too. The logic here doesn't hold. Uh, and someone from the UK, uh, Lucia Osborne Crowley, tweeted this out, which I think encapsulates just how convoluted the logic, the likes of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who speak on this uh, topic, uh, have fallen into. Just the logical fallacy is insane. So she tweeted out 16 years ago. I was violently raped in a McDonald's bathroom by a man who I thought would kill me when it was over. Today, I ducked into a McDonald's bathroom to check my makeup on the way to Buckingham Palace to talk to Camilla about rape reform and ending violence against women. A bunch of people saw this tweet and started spreading the kind of nasty right wing rhetoric that women will be subject to violence in bathrooms if trans women are allowed into them. And she decided to take to Twitter to say this. People are using this tweet to further their transphobic agendas. So I just wanna say none of that is welcome here. Using a story like mine to argue that trans women shouldn't be allowed in women's bathrooms is despicable. I will always fight for trans rights. And so I really like the viral video from the quality minister in Spain because she very very clearly says that actually violence against women is a problem and, and trans women are not the perpetrators of this. In fact, the opposite is true. So this is from the Williams Institute at UCLA and they were the first institute to do research that assesses someone's sex assigned at birth against their current gender when it comes to them being the victims or perpetrators of crime. And what they found is that transgender people ages 16 and up are victimized over four times more often than cisgender people. Transgender women and men had higher rates of violent victimization 86.1 and 107.5 per 100 people respectively, than cisgender women and men, 23.7 and 19.8 per 1,000 people respectively. So by spreading this narrative that by allowing transgender women to be allowed in spaces that are dedicated for women, that that somehow puts women at risk when we're doing next to nothing about addressing violence against women uh, perpetrated by cisgender men. We're pretty much covering for men by trying to make it seem like transgender women are the problem, but we're also putting transgender people at risk by spreading this narrative that is not backed in the data. Uh, so really good response from the equality minister in Spain who is being pressed on this topic by a member of parliament there. Uh, we have the same problem in the United States. Maybe we could use an equality minister here to debunk Marjorie Taylor Greene and the likes. Uh, but this is a really serious issue. Rayvon, I want to bring you in on it. Yeah, trans people who use the bathroom of their gender identity are significantly more likely to be the victims of a crime while using that bathroom than they are to perpetrate a crime. And it's not even close. I mean, and that's why you never hear these stories about, you know, the conservatives love to prop up this idea that trans people are pretending to be trans to use a bathroom so that they can, you know, perpetrate these crimes against women. Where are the crimes then? Show me the crimes. They don't have any examples because it's just 
not happening. And I'll just say this too, don't ever let a turf or a transphobe tell you that they just wanna protect the rights of a biological, meaning cis women. Because if you are a cis woman like I am, and you stand up for trans rights like I do, those same turfs will turn around and start to speculate as to whether or not you are considered a woman under their worldview of what it means to be a woman. They'll, they'll discount you from their movement that supposedly is meant to support cis women specifically. I mean, and it's absurd. It's 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 truly horrifying when trans people are, you know, being so highly persecuted in this country, you know, but it is reassuring to see someone at that high level, like the woman in Spain standing up for trans rights and and standing up for women's rights. Yeah, and to see in the United States people who are, you know, members of the party of freedom, you know, we have too much government, etc. And yet we have government officials telling people how they should live their personal lives and how they should identify, so much so that they should restrict which bathrooms they would want to use, which is a very intimate decision. It doesn't seem like the party of freedom to me, especially considering the fact that transgender people make up between one and two percent of the population in the United States, and yet they've made this an everyday conversation when it comes to American politics. When so many people are struggling to keep food on the table, it really tells you what their priorities are. So we're gonna go to our next story. This is one you've probably heard all about. People love talking about the weather, but we're experiencing some very extreme weather. Winter storms have hit hard, watch this. The cold Christmas storm bringing heavy snow, strong winds and brutal temperatures. New England's deep freeze seen its coldest Christmas Eve high temps since 1975. New Jersey had its coldest day Friday in nearly four years. Central Park's high, just 15 degrees. And this morning, Buffalo still reeling from a historic blizzard. It is devastating. It is going to a war zone. Overnight, Western New York's death toll climbing. Nationwide, now nearly 50 deaths blamed on the past week's winter weather. Absolutely devastating. If you traveled through an airport or you know anyone who tried to travel on a plane, it was probably a nightmare for them. A lot of people just trying to visit their loved ones over the holidays have been left in a bind. Look at this headline from Reuters, travel insanity. US passengers stranded by winter storm, 2,500 flights canceled. Uh, Furthermore, the unhoused are again at the brunt of this extreme weather. U.S. shelters saw an influx of homeless seeking help amid life-threatening winter. Fears about safety of unsheltered people raised as freezing blast of weather sweeps Great Plains and Great Lakes regions. It's just another reminder about the brutal power of Mother Nature, what the consequences of climate change and extreme weather will be. And it's also a reminder that storms like this are not just a problem for people who are traveling, who have the luxury of taking a plane to visit their loved ones. It's a huge problem for people who are living on the streets who freeze to death when we experience these weather conditions. So this headline is very interesting from the New York Times. Why can a warming climate increase snowfall? One of those questions you have to ask when you have all of these people questioning whether or not climate change is a real phenomenon. So reporting from the New York Times again, overall winter temperatures are warming and the length of the winter season is shortening. Warmer temperatures mean that more of that precipitation will fall as rain rather than snow, according to Sean Burkle, climatologist for the state of Maine. But some places could still see more snowfall than before when rising temperatures are still below the freezing point. 
Global climate change unfolds a story of extremes. Historically, wet areas are likely to experience increased precipitation, while historically dry areas may see more drought, even as higher evaporation rates dry out uh, the soil. So it's really a story of extremes. That's why the main problem with climate change is that we have coastal areas that will experience more flooding, not only because of rising sea levels, but because of the increased severity of storms. And we know that these will disproportionately affect communities uh, that don't have the resources to prepare themselves to weather these storms, uh, have insurance or, or build new homes. Uh, I wanna watch this last uh, video we wanna show you regarding the winter storms, cause this is kind of a feel good story, let's watch. But Christmas in Buffalo did come with some unexpected holiday hope. Alex and Andrea Campagna say on Friday, a bus full of Korean tourists heading for Niagara Falls got stuck outside their Buffalo area home. So I said, Come on in, everybody, because you're going to be here for a while. Without hesitating, the couple welcomed 10 strangers in for two nights, sharing homemade Korean food and the Bills game with new friends. That's a nice, really lovely story. I don't know why you'd want to visit Buffalo above the places. No shade to Buffalo, been to Buffalo, great place. It's just that there are other places that aren't as cold. Uh, and maybe are more interesting. Perhaps they were seeing Niagara Falls, not really sure there. Uh, but the other thing that strikes me about this story is like, if this was an unhoused person who didn't have access to a shower for a few days or someone that you had seen in the streets before, would you be as willing to let them in just because of how they look and, and why is that? I think that's an important thing to interrogate because there are people who are stranded on the streets all of the time. But during the holidays, we love a story like this uh, but you know, the class consciousness in me tells me that there's uh, some troubling dynamics here as well. Ravana. Yeah, I hate to bring it down after that feel good story, but um, I do want to highlight that there was a, you know, people are dying in the storm, the death tolls continue to rise. And there was a 22 year old young woman who was driving in the storm and her car got stuck, got buried in, and she waited in there for hours and hours, but uh, you know, First responders couldn't reach her because the roads are so covered in snow and ice that she died in her car of carbon monoxide poisoning. And she's, you know, by far not the only person who's experienced this. And the Buffalo mayor came out and made a statement about looting happening during the storm, which I think, you know, should should be at the bottom of your list of priorities right now when you need to be dedicating all of your resources to helping these people who are being impacted by the storm as opposed to, you know, trying to focus attention on people who are, you know, maybe stealing some items from stores. Who cares? People are dying in your city and you need to make it your priority to rescue people who are stuck in the snowstorm and to help people who are stuck in their houses, you know, have access to water and make sure that their electricity stays on and things of that nature and not diverting attention to, you know, a couple people breaking into stores and and stealing TVs or whatever the hell they're stealing. That's not what's important right now. But Ravana, who will think of the corporations? Oh my goodness, it's crazy. I mean, they have insurance. They're not gonna even be fronting the cost of the lost goods that were stolen. Also, why are people risking their lives to go out during a dangerous storm where homes were literally encapsulated in ice in Buffalo? They're gonna go out and drive to go to the stores to loot, why? Because they have basic needs that are not being met. They're either stealing to sell things or they're stealing things that they really need. How often do we see pictures of the NYPD repossessing things that they say were stolen and it's baby formula? It's like 
people are struggling to meet their most basic needs and you're concerned for the corporations having a loss that is such a small fraction of their total revenue that it's like a drop in the ocean. It's just absurd that this is what our media focuses on. Well, what will we do with all of the looters when the real violence is that we have more than enough resources and people are being exploited. They're not paid for the labor that they do. We've seen the charts from the Economic Policy Institute of what revenue looks like over time for corporations and what wages are being paid, what proportion of their revenue is going towards labor. It shrank steadily since the 70s. It's such a small fraction that it is so glaringly obvious that workers are not paid for the value of their labor. And then they are deprived of basic necessities. It's not hard to allocate public funding to pay for housing, especially when you consider we have 552,000 homeless people and about 16 million vacant units in the United States. It's an allocation problem and it's intentionally ignored and people are literally freezing to death. So yeah, sorry to bring the feel good story down, but I think, you know, Ravana and I have a tendency, I don't know, to be real about this stuff. That's so Raven of you. <laughs> I needed to get that in there. It's a good line. It's a good line. I'm good definitely going to use it. <laughs> We're going to do a, compile all of Ravana's predictions politically and just have a segment that's so Raven, I think. I like it. I love it. With two Ys, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Ravana, tell the people where they can find more of your work. Yes, you can see my show on TYT's Twitch channel reactions every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can watch me all the rest of this week and next Tuesday filling in for JR on the watch list. And you can see my Rebel HQ videos on YouTube and Facebook. And before Twitter you know, inevitably destructs, you can follow me there at Ravana TTV. Beautiful, love this. We'll see you all tomorrow morning. Thanks for being with us on Unbox. Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Idarola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and The Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.